John 6, I will be reading verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. You can be seated. Father, I pray that you would empower the preaching of your word to the edification of your saints and the glorification of your name. Father, teach us, show us, reveal yourself to us. We are hopelessly lost without you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our verses today tie in with, dovetail off of the account of the feeding of the 5,000 that we covered last week. An account where we were told that Jesus purposely asked Philip, where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? A question that, he was po that was posed not just to Philip, but to all the disciples. A question that was given to test him and them. Philip and the disciples got part of the question right, the easy part. They said that it was impossible to buy enough bread to feed this crowd. This is truth. There was no Costco's in that day. There were no catering services, no lunch wagons that would travel around to large groups. They were in the middle of nowhere. And the places that were close to them were not set up to cater to such large crowds. They had calculated the number of people, had quickly factored in how much money it would cost to feed each one of them, and had come up with 200 denarii, which is about eight months wages. They then counted how much money they had amongst them, which didn't add up to 200 denarii. This was all correct. It didn't add up. It was impossible. Where they got the question wrong, though, was the fact that they failed to factor in Jesus. They had been witness to his life. His miracles had seen him make 60-plus gallons of amazingly expensive wine out of just plain old water, had seen him heal the sick, the lame, the blind, 
and even bring people back from the dead. None of this is logical, practical, reasonable. And yet, when this question was posed to them, they were still thinking very practically. But Jesus was never practical. He was always God, which is to say that he had a way of dealing with the impossible outside of what we consider reasonable, practical, and logical. He had a way of making the impossible possible. We are told in verse 6 that he had asked the question concerning the feeding of the 5,000 to test Philip and the disciples. This test was not a math test. It wasn't a sociological test. It was a faith test, a heart test, a test to allow Philip and the disciples to see how much their heart and their lives were aligned with their master. Nor was this a multiple choice test either, for at the end of verse 6 tells us that although Jesus asked this to Philip to test him, he himself knew what he was going to do. The feeding of the 5,000 for the crowd was given to show the oneness between God the Father and God the Son. The feeding of the 5,000 for the disciples was given to show how wrong they were in their estimation of themselves and the man that they knew to be the Messiah. Jesus would use this one event, this miracle of making food out of nothing to challenge all that were present with his reality. He would use this one event as the catalyst to reveal the sons of God and the sons of Satan. He would use this one event to highlight the reality of exactly who he is. And in this one event, he was going to give a preview of why he came to the earth. He desired that those that were given to him by his father, that they would come to believe, and that by believing that they would have eternal life in his name, he would provide earthly bread to feed all that were there on that day. This was a preview of the spiritual bread that he would give only to those that were called by his Father. Our verses today, verses 16 through 21, are given to us and are a great example of how truth is told, how one story can be given truthfully by a multitude of people with variations, none of them being false, and all of them being given for a specific reason. Let me explain that. Because all the Gospels have the account of the feeding of the 5,000 contained within them. But remember that the book of John is given to us for one specific reason. That reason is given to us in chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
Jesus does this by emphasizing the unity between Jesus and the, I'm sorry, John does this by emphasizing the unity between Jesus and the Father, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1 and carrying on throughout this gospel. Verses 14 through 18 are a great example of this. He said, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. John wanted to emphasize the centrality of true faith in Christ, in salvation, comparing and contrasting true faith with false faith over and again in his gospel. He wanted to show over and again that outside of the calling of the Father, alongside the empowering of the Spirit, that none can have true faith. He desired to highlight the sovereignty of God, especially in salvation. He does this beginning in chapter 1, and will continue throughout his gospel. As an example, we have verses 19 through 13 of chapter 1. He says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The eternal, sovereign election and calling by God on his people is thematic within this gospel. He emphasizes this truth and how it's tied in between the unity of God the Father and God the Son over again. John knew, knew the reality of this truth was of crucial importance. He knew and had been witness to the fact that sincere belief is not the same <clears throat> as saving belief. He had been friends with Judas. He had been a ministry partner with him for over three years. He'd eaten with this man, had been sent out by Jesus to preach and heal alongside this man. He had been taught to pray alongside this man. And yet, in the end, this man's faith in a false man-made Jesus had proven spurious and of no account. Knowing these, um, these things helps us to make sense of what can be seen as discrepancies within the same telling of the same account by different authors. Again, after feeding the 5,000, John tells us that perceiving that the crowd was about to make him king, he had withdrawn from the crowd. Verse 15. Verse 16 picks up telling us that what happened next was that Evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. The telling of our account today 
is not in all the Gospels. Luke left this one out. But Mark and Matthew have it. And in their telling of it, they add differing takes on it. They fill out some of the events that happened after the feeding of the 5,000 and the departure of Jesus and the walking of water. Both Matthew and Mark emphasized that it was Jesus who dismissed the crowd. How he did this, we're not sure. But they both emphasized, like John, that Jesus went away from the crowd. But in their accounts, they add that he went away from even his own disciples. And both of them tell us that he went away to the mountain to pray. John's accounting of the boat ride back to the other side of the lake is given in such short and precise wording that taken by itself, we can come to some bad conclusions. Let's look again at verses 16 through 18. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because the strong wind was blowing. Taken by itself, the reader could easily assume that the disciples, less standing alone by themselves for a long period of time, after looking for Jesus and not finding him, decided on their own to get back into the boat and head back home. It would be easy to assume that this was their choice, that they should have known better than to head out across the Sea of Galilee at night, that they should have not left Jesus on the shore, that they should have waited for him no matter how long it took. But when we read this account, alongside the other Gospels, we understand a decision to head back on the other, to the other side of the lake was not their own. They hadn't made a bad decision, a bad choice. And the storm at sea and their almost drowning was not on them. This is how Mark tells the part, this part of that account. Mark 6, 45 through 48. It says, immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. One of the first things that stands out is that in the Mark account, it says that they were heading to Bethsaida. John's account says that they were heading to Capernaum. So which is it? And how could one or both of these guys have gotten where they were going wrong? And if they got this wrong, what else could they have gotten wrong? Well, Bethsaida was a village, a small fishing village in the region of Capernaum. John was giving us the big picture of where Jesus would be ministering from next. Mark gave us the exact place that they were heading to that night. Here's how Matthew tells that part of the account. Matthew 14. Immediately, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain to pray by himself. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat 
by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against him. When we read the John account alongside the other Gospels, we get a better understanding of what was going on. What Jesus was doing alone on that mountain and why the disciples were in the boat in the first place. First of all, we are told that Jesus desired to be alone. Not to get some well-deserved and needed sleep. In Matthew's account, we're told that it was on the heels of hearing that John the Baptist had been beheaded that Jesus took his disciples to a deserted place to be alone. Chapter 14, verse 13. His account goes on to tell us that Jesus had compassion on that crowd that had followed him and even healed their sick. It was then that he asked Philip that question concerning the bread. It was then that he had provided for not only the crowd, but even his disciples. And it was after all of this, after a long day, that Jesus sent not only the crowd away, but also his disciples. And he heads up to a solitary place to be with his father. The life of Jesus was marked by prayer. He prayed often. Mark 1.35 tells us, uh, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off into a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus prayed in the desert and other lonely places, Luke 5.16. And he often prayed all night long, Luke 6.12. His prayers were of such intensity and focus that at the end of his life he even sweat great drops of blood. Luke 22:44. We need to stop and ask ourselves why Jesus sent everyone away to be alone with his Father. We can answer that question by thinking that since he was God, since he was perfect, that this was only the natural thing for him to do. He's giving us an example of how to live that perfect Christian life. And we would be wrong. We can think that he so enjoyed hanging out with the Father, that the Father was his favorite person to converse with. After all, everyone else was always wrong concerning the eternal and the heavenly. He had to go to the Father to have a true, meaningful conversation. And we would be wrong. Jesus was God, is God, but he was fully man as well. We are told that he was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. This includes the temptation towards self-exaltation. These people, that crowd, were all into Jesus. They were there shouting his name, shouting his praise, desiring to make him king over them. He needed to be alone with the Father, to continue to align his heart, his life, his ministry with the Father. He needed time with the Father to draw on, to strengthen him for what was in front of him. Are we any better than Jesus? And yet, how often do we seek the solitude of silence to be with the Father, to align our hearts with his, 
How often in the midst of a minor crisis will we actually stop and pray? How often when we're faced with being praised and receiving accolades do we recognize that this is when we truly need to be alone with the Father? That it's then that the real danger is standing at the door of our hearts. Verses 18 and 19 of our account today are pretty generic in detail. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. These verses read like a transcript from an insurance seminar. The sea became rough because the wind was blowing. They rode for a while, and hey, look over there. It's Jesus. What are you doing out here in the middle of the night on the ocean? Oh, and they were frightened. We're going to have to go back to that Matthew and Mark accounts to provide clearer insight as to what the disciples were actually facing. In both of those accounts, we are told that Jesus saw the disciples making painful headway because the wind was against them. And if you were offended by the fact that Jesus asked the question concerning the feeding of the 5,000 to his disciples to test them, what are you now feeling when you understand that Jesus once again has put his disciples to the test? Only this time it's getting very real for them. What the disciples were facing was not merely a heavy handwind that would made it hard for them to row against. The area surrounding the Sea of Galilee is very mountainous. The lake itself is 600 feet below sea level. And for these reasons, there are freak storms that come out of nowhere and cause that lake to act more like an ocean than a lake. So much so, on another occasion, when these same disciples were crossing that same lake, they woke Jesus up and asked him if he even cared that they were about to perish. The storm was just that bad. And if you think that the storm at sea and the trials that these men are facing are not the predetermined plan of God, and that he's not the one that sent those winds that caused that storm, then your theology is inconsistent. Listen to Mark 4, 39 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This incident that I just read is recorded in both Matthew and Mark as happening before our account today. 
which is to say that these men had been here before, been in a storm just like this before, and even speak to what they were facing and exactly what John meant when he said they were frightened, what that looked like. And verses 20 and 21 are almost as anticlimactic as verses 18 and 19 are sparse on background information. They read, But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land which they were going. Mark's gospel finishes the account with these verses. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Again, there's much more detail added to the story and even some commentary concerning both the actions of Jesus and the thoughts and hearts of the disciples. According to the account given to us by Mark, Jesus was content with allowing his disciples to struggle against the wind and the waves, to struggle in their own strength against that which they were unable to control, to work in their flesh, and give no thought to the one who had calmed the sea earlier with three simple words the last time they were in this kind of a situation. And if you've ever been in a small boat on a large lake during a storm, you know a bit about what it means to say that they were terrified. You know that the force that you're facing can end you at any moment. The disciples, even though they were seasoned fishermen, knew the perils of the sea. And they may have been seasoned, experienced watermen, but they still would have had some level of anxiety mixed with fatigue when they were rowing across the ocean, the lake. And then off in the distance, they began to see something on the water. Perhaps at first they thought it was another boat. But they soon could determine that whatever it is, it is not having a problem navigating the wind and the waves. It is gaining on them and even overtaking them. It is then that they can make out through the wind and the waves that it is a man on the water, a man where no man could possibly be which is why their initial reaction was wrong, thinking that it was a ghost, which replaced their anxiety over the storm with sheer terror over what they were now seeing. The Matthew account ends this way. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. 
And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. But Matthew's account verifies that which Mark had written concerning the disciples thinking that it was a ghost. Only in his account, he adds that they cried out in fear, which is possibly why Jesus decided not to pass them by and allow them to deal with the wind and the waves on their own. But to the Mark account, Matthew adds this little vignette about Peter. Peter has always been known for speaking quickly for allowing his feelings to guide him. This moment is no different. But you have to wonder at the trust that he has in this man, Jesus. Because it's one thing to marvel at a person that is doing the impossible, but it's simply completely something different when you yourself get personally involved. John left out Jesus walking past them. He left out how they felt, what they thought. He left out Peter. He also left out the commentary by Mark on them, not understanding the message of the lows and that their heart was hardened. John left out these details because it was his desire to focus completely on the meaning behind the account. How this event tied in with the feeding of the 5,000 and the importance of it, especially in light of the conversation that would soon take place after it. He desired to emphasize one thing in all of it, not the disciples, not the storm, and not even Jesus walking on water. He wanted to emphasize the importance of what Jesus said as he was doing that which gave evidence to the reality of what he said. All three of the Gospels contain the same statement made by Jesus. It is I. Do not be afraid. Have you ever heard someone say that the meaning has been lost in translation? What this meant, what is meant by this statement is that very often languages don't translate straight across one to another. This is one of those instances. We are told that Jesus standing on the water where he should not be standing said to terrified, panicked disciples, it is I, do not be afraid. The original language and the original statement is that but it's far more than that as well. In the Greek, the words that Jesus used when he said, it is I, are emi ego. Emi is translated from Greek to English as I am. Ego is translated from the Greek into the English as I am. In essence, what Jesus is saying to them is, I am that I am. 
You may have heard that statement before. Maybe like Exodus 3.14, when Moses, speaking with God, asked him who he was. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now for full disclosure, it would be hard to make a case that what Jesus was saying would be translated or could be translated straight across to the same meaning of Exodus 3.14. But when you use another verse found between these two texts as a bridge, then the case becomes rock solid. That text, that bridge is Isaiah 43.10, which says, you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, Father, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may believe and know, I'm sorry, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any God after me. The Septuagint translate that verse from Hebrew into Greek using the same words, ami ego. And the original Hebrew, those words that are, are the exact ones that are used in Exodus 3.14. It's the same words that Jesus will use later in chapter 8, verse 58, when he says, Truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. What he is declaring to the disciples is the only reason why they should not be afraid in that situation. He is the I am. He is declaring to them in word the reality that he is demonstrating in deed. In the book of Job, when Job is confronting his three friends, he says this concerning God the Father. He says, Job chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, then Job answered, Yes, I know what you said is true, but how can a person be justified before God? If one wanted to take him to court, he could not answer God once in a thousand times. God is wise and all-powerful. Who has opposed him and not come out unharmed? He removes mountains without their knowledge, overturning them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place so that its pillars tremble. He commands the sun not to shine and seals off the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He makes the stars, the bear, the Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the southern sky. He does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. If he passed by me, I wouldn't see him. If he went by, I wouldn't recognize him. What Job said concerning God is right. Only he can control the elements. And only he can control them to the point of making a liquid become solid under his feet as he's walking on it. And Job, knowing this about God, knowing this about the reality of the Father, knew this as well. He finished that chapter with these verses. For he is not a man like me that I can answer him, that we can take each other to court. There is no mediator between us to lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me so his terror will no longer frighten me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But that 
is not the case. I am on my own. Outside of the man that was standing on the water at that moment, this is the reality for all of us. We are hopelessly lost in our sin against this God. We, like Job, like the disciples, need a mediator. One that is no less God than God himself. And one who is no less man than each one of us. This is why Jesus would not be their king. The king that, of that crowd that was so enamored with him. Because that king could not save. That king might be able to bring about some minor changes in political or social circumstances. But that king could not stand in the gap between the Father and us. There are those that claim Christ as their Lord now, who will tell you that he is their king. But they are like this crowd, who are so enamored with the things of Christ that they don't know him as their Savior. Who, like that crowd, and even most of those that called themselves disciples, will leave, will walk away, will jettison the real Jesus because he will not be their king. John 6, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. He is not our king. He is the I am king. This was the point that Jesus was making to Philip and the disciples when he asked them, how are we to buy bread for these people? This was the point that he was making when he sent the disciples into the boat, into that storm. He is the I am that I am. And because he is the I am, there will be times in your life that he will do the same thing to you that he did to the disciples. He will put you in a place, in a time, in a boat that is being rocked. There are times in each of our lives that we need to have our lives rocked. We are just like the disciples, thinking much too much of ourselves, having our hearts hard toward the Lord and the things of the Lord, forgetting very quickly how the Lord has taken care of us and provided for us, and that we've been purchased at a great price and are no longer our own. Being very practical, logical, mathematical with our lives, planning systematically for our future here on earth, and completely neglecting the real math, the real future, our life with the Lord. It's very often, if you are his, that he will rock your little boat and rock it hard and then keep rocking it 
until you get to that point where you are terrified about what is going on around you, until you get to that point that you realize that you're way in over your head and that there is no logical, reasonable way out. He desires that just as with the disciples, you stop seeing him as a hand up, as a hand out, a man that you can understand and even give advice to, a man that you can ignore at your discretion and call on only when you feel that it's needed. And start seeing once again, and maybe for the first time, seeing him as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Great I Am. It's in the midst of that storm that is raging around you that you will catch a glimpse of the majesty of Jesus. He may terrify you at that moment, not understanding what's going on or who he really is. But as you continue to look at him, you will gain understanding that the storms that are rocking your boat and your world are controlled by him. It's then that you'll cry out to him. And it's then that he will calm you, which calms the storms around you. It's then that you will be faced with the same question that he posed to the 12 disciples in John 6, verse 67 through 69, when he said, do you want to go away as well? So Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's life had been rocked and rocked hard. He had trusted in the man who he thought was the Lord and was called out of the boat and onto the water. But his faith failed him. And now, after hearing Jesus speak of eating his body and drinking his blood, and after being just as challenged with the reality statements as the disciples that walked away, after hearing, I'm sorry, after having everything in his life rocked by this I am king, it was then that he was asked, do you want to go away as well? Do we want to go away as well? Yes! But to whom will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. How had he come to know this? Through the testing of where to buy the bread. Through the testing of the boat ride through the terror on the sea, and through the demonstration of the reality of who Jesus is. Saints, there is no greater grace of God outside of salvation than the storm that rocks your boat 
to such a degree that you feel like you're slipping away, that you may die at any moment, and that you may lose everything, simply everything. The storm, that in the midst of it, Jesus reveals himself to you and commands you, do not be afraid, because I am that I am. And in that moment, because of that moment, you know, you know this to be true. And in that moment, even with the sea still raging and the wind still blowing, you're no longer afraid. It was then that Peter could comprehend, fully comprehend, and understand what David meant when he penned Psalm 46. Grab your Bibles and turn with me there. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. Kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of Yahweh, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Saints, do you know the Lord like this? Is he your rock, your refuge, and your strength. He will bring storms into each of our lives in order that we can know if he is just a king that we've made in our own image or if he's indeed the I am king. He sends the storms, but is the calm in the midst of the storm. 
I hope and pray this is the Jesus that you know. And if you're in the midst of a storm, stop rowing. Stop being fearful. Start looking to Jesus, the one that sent that storm, the one that calms that storm, the one that walks on that storm, the one who is the I am that I am. Be still and the know that he is God. Let's pray.